Hey, grab a Bible and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. You know, Arch, I was thinking about uh, what you said about that pastor. Uh, remind me his name started with a K. Uh, no, the, the one who was in the caste system and uh, he... Quran. Quran. It was, it was interesting to me that Arch brought up Quran in his uh, testimony. Uh, because you see, you know, Quran was, was... He's a Christian and trying to to identify with his other Christian brothers and sisters, and yet those Christians in a different class than him are not paying attention to him, and they're treating him poorly, and they're, and they're showing him disdain, even as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is just so... Uh, that, that seems so foreign to us. We would think as Christians, we would at least, at least treat each other right, and of course, at most, go on to treat all the world, right? All, all sinners and all people in a loving and gracious manner. But that man, uh, uh, Quran, he, he, he did not experience love from his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Even from his own people, he didn't experience love. In Romans 5, where we're going to be today, Paul's going to say, not only does our God show amazing and abundant and and incredible love toward His sons and daughters, His children, but before that, He also pours out His love and grace and blessings even upon His enemies. Even upon the least of these. And if He does it to His enemies, how much more so is He going to do it to His friends? The title of my message today, If God did this for His enemies, how much more will He do for His friends? We've been in Romans a long time now, and and for some of us, uh, we're catching this and and trying to remember where are we at in the book of Romans. I wanted to bring up some some recap points, if you will. Where is Paul's most recent thought in Romans? Where is he going in the book of Romans? I want to bring up a few points here. Number one, we are justified by faith. Paul's making that clear at the very start of Romans 5, verse 1. We are justified, we are made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. But not only that, with justification comes many, many blessings. A, it comes, uh, with justification comes peace with God. We have a harmony with God when we accept Christ by faith. Secondly, we have access to grace. It says grace in verse 2. It doesn't say God. Now, of course, we do have access to God. But it's interesting that Paul's terminology, he says, we have access to the grace in which we stand. In other words, the grace that you and I see in the person of Christ, the grace that we wake up with every morning knowing that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ, that same grace we have access to as we live and breathe. It's a grace that transforms our life. It's a grace that gives us a refreshment as we go about our day-to-day lives. Third, see... We have joy in the hope of eternal glory, Paul says. We will be glorified. And we can have joy and hope in that. And D, the ability to face tribulation with joy. With justification comes the ability to look at tribulation in the face and say, you know what, 
I can face this with joy. I can face this with joy. Paul says in Romans 5, 3-5, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Perseverance, character, hope. We said last time we met in Romans that that these three qualities are three qualities that you and I will have in full in the Kingdom of God. These are qualities, these are characteristics that you and I will experience in full when we are perfected, when we are glorified, when God makes all things right and He makes us like Himself. We'll be glorified. We will become people who have persevered, who are inherently, uh, have integrity and character, who have an enduring hope. We will share in this glory of the Lord. And so whatever, friends, whatever in this life contributes to the formation of character in the life hereafter that will fully be ours, Paul says that's worth experiencing. Whatever in this life contributes to the formation of character that will fully be ours in the next life, Paul says that is worth experiencing. That's why we can have joy in tribulation. It draws us closer to the person of Christ and toward our final destiny in the kingdom. Paul gives one more reason to hope, though, as we approach our text this morning. Why else can we have hope? Why have hope in the midst of hardship? Why have hope in the midst of struggle? Paul says, because we have the love of God in us. He says, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, I ask the question, what is the nature of that love? What is the nature of the love that God has poured out to us by the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm, uh, I'm in premarital counseling with uh, a couple and, and we're going over you know, basic questions about you know, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to be married to someone? What does it mean to, to be uh, committed to someone for the, for the rest of your life? And, and you, know, you, you always ask the question in premarital counseling, what is love? What is love? And over the years, uh, I haven't done a lot of premarital counseling, but over the years I've gotten a wide variety of answers. I was thrilled that the most recent couple I've been counseling, I mean, they nailed it on the dot. They said, it's, look, it's more than an emotion. It's more than a feeling. It's a measure of commitment. It's a measure of looking at the person across the table and say, I, I am committed to you. I make a vow to you. I'm going to demonstrate my love to you in commitment. I asked the question, what love has God poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit? Now we approach our text this morning. Look at Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. It says this, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. 
But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Zero in on verses 6-8 through there. What love has God poured out into our hearts according to the Apostle Paul? What love has overwhelmed our soul? What love has consumed every fiber of our being? Verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It isn't easy to, uh, to face tribulation and hardship. Paul's been talking about that in, in the earlier parts of Romans. It isn't easy to go through difficult times and struggles. Uh, many of us are dealing with economic issues, health issues, marital issues, and whatnot. And, and these are hard circumstances. Some of them are dire circumstances. But the book of Romans gives us two very clear ways that we should always have hope. First, the perseverance, character, and hope that is nurtured in us draws us closer to who we will be in the kingdom. So we, we can have hope in that. But second, God's love demonstrated by the death of Jesus Christ has overcome all adversity. He did it. He overcame all adversity. He overcame all odds. He overcame all tribulation. The death of Jesus Christ overcame sin. It overcame death. It overcame the power of evil. God's love is stronger. It is more durable. It is more potent and lasting. It is greater than any single trial you will ever face. It is stronger than those trials. And we can know without a doubt that no matter what we're going through, we can experience the love of God which casts aside, which puts to shame the powers of the wicked one. And even despite our unworthiness of it, God has poured out His love freely to us. Notice what He says in verse 6 and 7 again. He says, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were not strong, when we were not righteous, when we were not good, when we were sinners, God poured out His love to us in Christ. He died for the ungodly. Despite our unworthiness of His love, He gives it to you and I freely. 
That word ungodly there uh, is, is an adjective in Greek. Uh, the noun ungodliness came earlier in, in the book of Romans. It came in chapter 1. Take a look at uh, chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed, Paul says, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So Paul here is picking up a word he's used before. And I, I want to just briefly ask the question, what does that teach us about God? What does it teach us that on the one hand, the wrath of God is being expressed in this world upon ungodliness and unrighteousness? And on the other hand, in chapter 5, Paul can also go on to say that Christ died for the ungodly. What does that teach us about God? Simply this, our Lord loves the very people who provoke Him to wrath. When God disciplines, when God acts in wrath, he does not do so sans emotion or feeling or, or, or sentiment toward the one He is expressing wrath toward. He loves them. He made them. And when, when humanity pushes God to wrath because of their sin, the actions that God takes are never out of touch with His love. Arthur Pink writes this about the wrath of God in his book, The Attributes of God. He writes this. He says, It is sad to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology. Others harbor the delusion that God's wrath is not consistent with His goodness, and so they seek to banish it from their thoughts. I'm saying here, Paul's saying here, the wrath of God expressed against ungodliness is not divorced from the love of God who died for the ungodly. God's wrath is never divorced from His love. As He disciplines, as He gives people over to the consequences of their sin, it is always His desire, because of His love, that they would turn in repentance, that they would turn their face to the living God, that they would turn their face to Jesus Christ and say, forgive me for what I've done. Jesus, save me. I am a sinner in need of Your grace. His wrath is never divorced from His love. I think of my own uh, parenting and... and uh, uh, lately, Bennett has been pushing the envelope a little bit. Uh, Mallory just turned one, and she's starting to stand up, and she's starting to, you know, take a few steps. Uh, you know, a little uh, Haley Rosepink. Where's Dustin and Alyssa? The little Haley Rosepink, man, she just runs all around, and she's younger than Mallory. But our girl's just, you know, she's starting to take some steps. And, uh, and sometimes I'll be in the kitchen, and I'll be watching kind of my, my kids play in, a, in the playroom area, and, and uh, I'm watching just to see how Bennett interacts with Mallory. And on one occasion, Mallory stood up and came over to him very gingerly and, you know, kind of tapped him on the shoulder and was like, ah, you know, she's a real happy baby. So she's, hi, you know, and he looks at her, he looks at her and he sees her just kind of wobbling a little bit and he goes, and my adrenaline shoots through the roof. I mean, I see my son just, I mean, he got into it. It was just, whoosh, you know, she just goes flying across the room. And uh, my adrenaline shot up, 
my anger rose up. My, I was wrathful, okay, as a father can be. And I run in there and I say, Bennett, what did you do? And then and I catch myself. I realize, okay, calm down. Get a hold of yourself. And I'm looking at my son and my daughter who didn't cry, amazingly. And, uh, and, I, and I, I, I get some composure. And as I'm looking at Mallory, I'm thinking to myself, you know, the protective love that I have toward her, I absolutely have toward him. That same love and, and desire to, to protect her and to care for her and to watch over her no matter what, I have that same love for Bennett. And so in my anger and in my wrath, if you will, over a situation, a circumstance in which my son needed to be disciplined, he needed to be punished for that, he needed correction. But as I was expressing that correction, it was not divorced from my love toward Him. The same is true of our God. As He expresses His wrath upon sinners, as He expresses discipline and consequence and judgment upon people who turn their face against Him, who shake their fist at Him, as He expresses that wrath, remember, friends, it is never divorced from His love. It is always with a view to turn their face back to the one true God. Arthur Pink is right. We don't need to make an apology for the wrath of God. It's not blind rage. That's not the wrath of God. It's not this, this, this disdain, this violence that is divorced from any kind of love. That's not our God. We don't need to make apologies for the wrath of God. The wrath of God is coupled with the love of God. He made the very people He corrects and judges. And He wishes them to turn to Him. If any of us still doubt God's love, Paul offers this final and undeniable proof of it. Again, he says in verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There are only three people that I would die for. My wife, my son, and my daughter. And the rest of you? I'm sorry. Now, I don't say that with pride. Um, I say that with some, a measure of shame. Um, Jesus would rather my list be a lot longer. But I know myself, and I know my limitations, and I think you probably know yours. And so I believe that the only people that I would die for are, are, are three. And yet here, the list is endless. Few people would die for a righteous man. Maybe for a good man, someone would die. But God demonstrates His love toward us, and then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. May we never doubt God's love, friends. That's Paul's point. Why would you ever doubt it? He died for every one of you. And let me tell you, 
You weren't family material when He died for you. You were a sinner. You were ungodly. He had every good reason not to die for you. And He ignored those reasons. He went to the cross and He died for billions upon billions of people, none of whom deserved it. May we never doubt God's love. God's love has been poured out to us in Christ by the Holy Spirit who has immersed us and filled us with the love of Christ. And if God has proven His love to us in this, He will surely prove His faithfulness through our trials. His love is a guarantee that the end result of a tribulation or a trial, it will not be in vain. It will always come through with perseverance, character, and hope. There will always be a reason for it, and God's love will prevail. Paul goes on to say in verse 9 and 10, he says this, Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if, we were enemies, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. These two verses really are a parallel of one another. You, you really you, you shouldn't divorce one from the other at all. They're pretty much a restatement. Ten is pretty much a restatement of nine and vice versa. The words much more there in Greek is palu uh, malan. Uh, palu malan. And it means uh, to a greater degree or to a greater extent. Um, in virtually all biblical examples of this phrase, it is used to communicate an argument from the lesser to the greater. Take a look at, like, for instance, Matthew 6, verse 30. Jesus says, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Well, grass is less than people. And so the point being that, hey, if God takes care of the, the lilies of the field, the grass of the field how much more will He take care of you? Interestingly enough though, this phrase is not limited to an argument from the lesser to the greater. In fact, there are many examples in first century Jewish literature in which this phrase is used to argue from the greater to the lesser. And most scholars actually believe that that's what's in view here in verse 9. Though both acts in verse 9 and 10 are indeed great. I want to come up with what I would say is Paul's main point here from verses 9 and 10. This is what Paul is driving at. He is saying this, if while we were enemies, Jesus' death justified and reconciled us to God, then certainly Jesus' resurrection life will save and deliver us from wrath. And again, I would argue this is more an argument from the greater to the lesser than vice versa. And there, there is examples of that in first century Jewish literature. Though this would be the one exception in the Scriptures. The vast majority of the Scriptures uh, follow the opposite pattern. But this, this is what Paul's driving at. He's saying, look, think about it for a minute. Think about it. Um, if you were an enemy of God, which is what Paul says we were, and God died for you, 
And by dying for you and shedding His blood, He reconciled you to Himself and He gave you the opportunity for justification by faith. If He did all of that when you were an enemy of God, how much more, how much more certain can we be that the resurrection life of Jesus, now, not, not the Jesus who died, but now the Jesus who is alive and well and risen, how much more will the, the Jesus who is alive and resurrected save and deliver you from wrath? We can be sure of it. We can be confident of it, Paul says. We don't have to doubt about this. Greg Herrick, in his comments on, on this passage, he writes this, If God has made a way in which He can legally declare a sinner righteous, then there is no way that any future judgment, I emphasize any, can threaten that verdict and the new relationship into which the justified sinner has entered. He goes on to say, since reconciliation to God is a present reality, the Christian should rejoice and know that he will be delivered from any future wrath and will enjoy spiritual life. I can't say it much better than that. I do want to emphasize the word any again. Um, there, I, I've, I spent a lot of time, this, and this troubles me, it troubles me when, uh, when scholars I respect dif- disagree on, on topics. And, uh, and some of the greatest scholars I respect on this passage uh, disagree in its application. Um, can, can you bring up verse 9 again, Corey? Sorry, I'm going to... Have you go back to that for a second. Many scholars, uh, they, they see the word saved from wrath and they put limiters on it. On the one hand, m- many scholars say the word saved from wrath refer exclusively to future eschatological wrath on the last day. In other words, if God has justified us by His death, then certainly He will save us from hellfire, if you will. Many scholars would argue for, for that kind of an interpretation there. Other scholars would say no. What, what, what Paul's driving at here is actually a, a, a very this-worldly kind of wrath. A very present kind of wrath. A wrath that exists in the here and now. And so they would say, if God has justified us eternally and saved us eternally, how much greater can He walk us through any wrath that He's pouring out on this world today? How much more can He protect us from that? How much more can He he watch over us through it? And so, uh, various scholars put limiters on this phrase, saved from wrath. Personally, I see a hybrid between the two. I see this because I think it's plain in Romans. When Paul uses the term wrath in Romans, there is occasions where he is thinking of the last judgment. I turn your attention, uh, we're not on the screen right now, but... I would urge you to consider Romans 2, verses 5-8, through 8, in which I would argue the term wrath there is unmistakably an indication of future eschatological wrath. I don't see any way that that could be temporal wrath. On the flip side, I also see from Romans 1.18, a passage we looked at earlier, that the wrath of God can also be expressed in a very this-worldly kind of context in a very present sort of way 
The wrath of God is being revealed, Paul says in Romans 1.18. And the Christians in Rome were very much aware of that. They knew the wickedness around them. And Paul said, hey, make no mistake, God is even now sending down wrath upon this generation of people. The wrath of God is being revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And Paul's audience, they were concerned about that. They were concerned that the wrath was going to fall upon them as well. And Rome was conquered. Excuse me, Rome was, was later destroyed and ceased to exist because of its sin and its degradation, as, as was Jerusalem. The people, the Christians, they were scared of this wrath of God that was being promised in Romans 1.18. But Paul is assuring his readers here. He's assuring them of this. If God can justify you and give you peace eternally, how much greater... Can He protect you from any kind of wrath that might come your way? Be it a wrath of this world or the wrath of the final judgment of God. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we were enemies, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. We're going to get into that topic of saved by His life in Romans 6. I really don't want to go into it uh, extensively here, but that's almost the entire chapter of Romans chapter 6. To be saved by His life. It means so much more than eternal salvation. It means having a very real and vivid and experiential kind of abundant life right now in the here and now. To be utterly saved, to be utterly delivered by the life of Jesus Christ in us. But notice this, and we'll get to that in Romans 6, but notice this, when did God reconcile sinners to Himself? Don't forget this. When they were enemies. Here again, for I don't know how many times he's done it, Paul makes mention that the cross of Christ had a very real and legitimate effect upon people. It brought the world near to God. When Christ died, God was reconciling the world to Himself. When Christ died, God was not imputing their trespasses to them. He was crushing sin and death. He was doing His part in reconciliation. And He was inviting us to be reconciled to Him by faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you've never believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, I urge you to do it. You will have a peace and a joy and a hope that that pales in comparison to any peace, joy, or hope you've experienced on this earth. God has reached out to you when we were enemies. Let us reach out to Him in faith. Become a child of God. And peace and hope and joy will be yours forever. 
Paul concludes in verse 11. He says this, And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Not only has God reached out to us by the death of His Son and reconciled Himself to us, not only are we reconciled to God when we believe in Jesus Christ, but also we have received a reconciliation. A reconciliation that we're called to minister to others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 19, a beautiful, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, he says this. He says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. He's reconciled Himself to us. We've reconciled ourselves to Him by faith. And He has now committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. To take that word, to take that gospel, to take that truth, and to share it with everyone. I want to bring us to just a closing thought today as we, uh, as we close. If God has freely offered humanity the blessings of justification and reconciliation and peace and hope and joy, if He's done all this while we were His enemies, how much more will He bless those of us who are His children by faith. Let us never doubt the love and goodness of God. Let us never doubt it, friends. It is more strong, it is more durable than anything that this life can throw at us. God loves you. He demonstrated that love by dying on the cross. He did that while you were an enemy. What will He do now? that you are His friend by faith in Jesus Christ. Expect great things from our Lord, friends. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your precious truth. We thank You, Lord, for the Apostle Paul and, and the words that You inspired him to write. Corey preached last week that uh, we're to love our enemies as Your Son taught us. And yet, Lord, it's, it's hard to love our enemies hard to sacrifice for them. It's, hard, it's certainly, it's certainly it's, to our minds, out of the question to consider dying for them. And yet, God, You, through Jesus Christ, died for us while we were Your enemies. While we were sinners. While we were shaking our fist at You, You died for us. Lord, may we never question Your love. You are a God who has loved us unconditionally. And now, Lord, that we are Your friends. Now, Lord, that we are Your children. Lord, rain down more love and grace upon us that we might experience You in full. That we might be saved in full by the resurrected life of Jesus Christ in us. In His name we pray these things. Amen.